The Dr. Lodi Podcast empowers people to think for themselves and teaches people how to achieve optimal health, free from cancer and all other chronic conditions. As a medical doctor, clinical psychologist, nutritionist, historian, philosopher, and the pioneer of what has now become the definitive route for those unsatisfied with the modern cancer treatment system, Dr. Lodi will deliver information that you've never heard before. Tune in and discover what a true second opinion really means, how to stop making cancer, why there is no such thing as diseases, and what you are truly capable of achieving in your life. All right. Well, hello, everyone. This is um, uh, actually the second part of a um, series of podcasts that uh, we're going to do on IPT. Um, and this time, uh, you, you probably, uh, I hope you saw the first one where you met uh, Dr. Donato Perez Garcia III, um, whose grandfather discovered, invented, put together, put together uh, certain elements of nature, was observant of nature, um, and came up with this whole uh, modality of uh, administration. You know, it's interesting. People ask me often, well, is this FDA approved? I said, well, the Food and Drug Administration approves drugs and devices. It doesn't produce, uh, approve modalities of administration. So, yeah, the drugs are FDA approved, you know, the chemos and the insulin or whatever else they're going to use. Um, but that modality doesn't is not even under their um, purview. So, anyway... Um, and I also want to remind everyone that um, uh, insulin potentiated therapy predates chemo, predates really the, 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 the field of oncology, which it has become, you know, the field that we know of today as conventional oncology, the insulin predates that. So this is nothing new. This has been around. And as you might have seen on the, on the first uh, podcast that when uh, Dr. Donato went over the uh, uh, kind of the history, his father was, or his grandfather was, um, started doing working with insulin in the in the teens of the last century you know in the teens and then the 20s and then i think it was in the, you know in the 30s and you know it just went on like that um so now rebecca is the daughter of dr stephen aaron you might have remembered um during the his, history lesson that we got um that dr stephen Aaron was a canadian physician who had really discovered Donato somehow. I don't know how he did it, but he did back in the 70s or 80s and went down to yeah, Mexico. 19, and, yeah, 1975 no. was when he traveled to Mexico City. And Donato, I think you had a mutual patient, a patient who had been to see my dad. And he became involved in alternative cancer care sort of circuitously because his of his sister who has schizophrenia. So my dad then became involved with mm-hmm. Abram Hoffer, who was... Uh, a, also Canadian physician, but a big name in orthomolecular medicine in the 70s. And so that's how he sort of circuitously became involved in alternative, what, you know, what was at that time called alternative uh-huh. medicine. And then once people with cancer realized they were like, oh, there's a doctor in Montreal who's, you know, he's into alternatives for cancer. And and people just glommed onto that because, it, you know, cancer treatment now is still has its the serious challenges for patients getting through it. And it was probably worse in the sixties and seventies so far as, so far as taking care of just the, the harshness of the treatment. 
And, um, and so when people learned about this physician who was giving people vitamins for cancer, they were, they just couldn't wait to see him. And, and then uh, it was a mutual patient, Donato, from what I understand, who had been out to see your dad for treatment. And she came back to my dad and she said, oh, you really should learn about what he's doing. It's so cool. And then I think you guys were traveling back from Europe and you came for dinner. I don't know. You know, the rest is history. But that's the, And then from 1975 on, you guys had like a really extensive relationship. My dad saved all of the letters uh, first they were handwritten and then on early typewriters and early word processors and then eventually um, emails. So it was sort of also a, a simultaneous history of correspondence and the, the advances that we made. But for, for years, you know, with my dad was sending letters to both you and to your father and then eventually came across an, an article in 19, I think it was published in 1982 um, mm. that... Oh, yeah, yeah. linked the the use of insulin as a biologic response modifier in cancer cells. And it happened to be a, a cell study with MCF7 breast cancer cells. And and finally he was like, okay, there that that someone's looking at this phenomenon. And um and then he researched it for probably another, you know, almost 20 years because yeah. he he didn't want to just jump into it he wanted to be able to to get uh, to get government funding cuz you know being canadian that's what you do right you get when you learn about something then you need to study it you need to share it with the world the means by which you do that is to get government funding for clinical trials and then you publish your clinical trials and and then it becomes available to everybody in the way it's supposed to and um and he just ran into about 20 years of of hurdles and and walls and I mean it was just it just didn't happen and and then uh, eventually he realized he's like well I'm just gonna open up a clinic and start doing it myself right. and well, met with a lawyer friend of his who then um what's that those walls are still up I know I know I know it's just it's not the 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 FDA approval process is set up to approve new drugs and as you said, Tom, we're not using anything new. Some chemotherapy drugs are actually quite old <laughs> and they're still being used because they have their place and their purpose and they're, and they can be helpful in killing, killing, killing cancer cells and which you have to when cancer is causing problems like pain and, and discomfort and organ dysfunction. And, um, but, um, but yeah, there, there's no approval process to, to, to study and look at a therapy like IPT. And it was just, it's way too cumbersome to, for that to actually happen. And so he, um, he felt that there was enough clinical information that, that he wanted to make available to people. And he had a lawyer friend who um, said, look, just have a really ironclad informed consent and make sure that you educate your patients on all the information so that when they choose to do the therapy, then they're basing that that choice on information. And mm -hmm. that's what he did. And um, And I do have I do have some slides here on, um, you know, just looking at the establishing the safety because there's always been 
concerns. At first, you know, my you know, my dad told everybody that he ever talked to about IBT. He's like, oh, you have to hear about this. You know, all of his doctor friends, um, he he presented at the, the Chicago Medical Society, um, and of course, then presented in at various conferences in Washington. And um, and then a lot of doctors, their main concern was like, oh my God, you're giving insulin to people and you're making them hypoglycemic, they're gonna go into a coma and die. And that was the assumption. And it doesn't work like that, thank God. Wow. And there's just it's it's strange because you know we work with type one diabetics and we routinely go home and some of them are some of these type one diabetics are infants, they're children, and we we send them home with insulin and maybe tell the parents, tell some of the you know kids that are eleven, twelve years old, eventually how to self administer insulin, and yet it's somehow when a doctor does it. Um, it was somehow, it was just unthinkable. And um, so when he first started practicing, he would, and he would add um, a dose of 50% dextrose, which is the antidote for clinical hypoglycemia. And um, we have modified that because it, if you, you know, if you go from a blood sugar, normal blood sugar down to 50 or so, and then you don't want to shoot it back up to 200, which can happen when you're giving, if you're giving IV dextrose as a, just routinely as a rescue treatment. Um, but he included that rescue dextrose, IV dextrose as a, as a sop to people who were thinking we were going to kill people with hypoglycemia, well, you know, which is not true. Let me, let me say one thing in that, because um, I, 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 this comes up often. You know, um, I, I used to work in the emergency room quite a bit, and I have to tell you that at least five times a day, somebody would be brought in unconscious. They're they're a diabetic. They're at home. They gave themselves a shot, and they forgot to eat, or they didn't eat enough. They fell off. They were on the ground. Their wife comes in. Who knows? Half hour later, an hour later, yeah. and they're unconscious. She calls the she calls the uh, ambulance. Then they takes them what twenty thirty minutes to get to the hospital. So they come in, we give them a shot of glucose and uh, Narcan, you know, uh, in case it's opiate, because we don't know, they're unconscious. And they go, oh. oh, Right, they come too, yeah. Yeah. There they are. That's truly a diabetic coma. I mean, an insulin coma. That's that's truly it. We don't get, we don't even, people never even get close to going unconscious. But but I'm just saying, I just, I'm trying to show that. Our fear over it is almost phobic. It's not. It's not based on on science. It's not based on reality. It's not based on what we've seen. Um, so yeah, I just. So believe me, it's not. It's not dangerous, and we don't get anywhere. We don't get people like that. If if we see and someone we're not in trouble, huge yeah. doses of insulin either. And I mean, this is an issue too with with type one diabetics or insulin dependent type two diabetics, and mm-hmm. because they're. They're, they're they're so they're so insulin resistant that they have to be taking yeah, yeah. huge doses of insulin, and that and they're they haven't been educated properly on diet. Like, don't eat eighty carbs at a sitting, eighty grams of carbs at a sitting, because then you're going to need that much insulin, and that's when you run into to danger of insulin when you're taking giant doses of of insulin, and right. it's just not necessary. It's not therapeutic. Yeah. You know, That's the, you know uh, the bottom line is really, uh, excuse me, no, just really quickly. Uh, the bottom line is clinical results, you know, right. and when I say results, I'm talking about long-term results. You know, like if you look at modern day oncology, 
a drug will get approved because you have three months progression-free survival, which is to me, nothing, you know, it just didn't grow for three months that, you know, but anyway, Donato's grandfather and father, 45 years each. That's a, that's what, that's 130 years, 135 years. And then we've got Stephen Ayer, Dr. Ayer, and then we've got Rebecca and me. So together we're like over 250 years of doing IPT with no deaths, no adverse, never. So, I mean, that's, you know, bottom line. And we're also talking about long-term survival. Then I have people 15 years, 20 years contacting me. So anyway, sorry, Donato. I will uh, I will add. To what Rebecca told, mentioned, or described the history, the Canadian uh, link is very interesting. How Doctor Air got involved, and it was simple. Doctor Air met uh, my father because not only one patient, two or three patients that were going to the air clinic in Montreal, in Montreal, Canada, were uh, were treated by my father in Mexico City because they had cancer. They Doctor Air knew these patients, but Dr. Air did not knew that these patients were going to Mexico City. Patients were doing that uh, with a secret. They were going because of a Canadian nun, uh, Francois de Serres, was referring them to this clinic and to this doctor. The sister of uh, Francois de Serres uh, was treated by my uh, father for ovarian cancer, and she got a recovery and she survived for many, many, many years. And um, because of that, the Canadian nuns started to talk to other patients in the Montreal area and referring, the, telling the patients, go to this clinic and you'll get better. Uh, two or three of these patients were also patients at the air clinic in uh, Montreal. And when they returned and uh, Dr. Air saw what happened, I thought you were in a much uh, poorer condition or that you were dead. And he was surprised that the patients had a, a significant recovery. He asked, started to make a, a, a research and then got in touch with my father. And my father invited Dr. Air to spend one month in November and December of 1975, where Dr. Air got to sit uh, alongside my father to learn and started to uh, get some of the information about the therapy. In that time, the therapy was called cellular therapy through the biophysical chemical changes of the blood. Uh, but one thing, my grandfather treated his first case of cancer in 1946. 30 years later, 30, he continued to do uh, treating patients using insulin and chemotherapy. So by the time Dr. Air met my father, 30 years have passed of exper anecdotal experience, whatever mm -hmm. you want to name it, but 30 years passed with patients having good or excellent results. So that was the reason why Dr. Stephen Air wanted to find out what was going on with Dr. Donato and his therapy using insulin. Because as you were saying, most of the times the research is done over a three year period. Well, when Dr. Ayer found that it happened to be that 
the research period for successful outcomes every time was 30 years, 1946 to 1976. So quite a big difference in what we are doing with the administration of insulin. Then Dr. Air started to do more research and uh, trying to get some uh, uh, answers looking at uh, the science articles. There were few articles. Read, uh, actually, there was only one article in the 1980s that was uh, written in uh, Georgetown University about how insulin might potentiate metrotexate. And it is described, and it was the first article speaking about the effects of insulin in non-diabetic patients. And it was 1981. And today, as of November 13 of 2023, the research that we have is insulin for diabetic patients. There is very few or none, or only they say data suggests, which means they don't know, because when somebody writes data suggests, it's because there is no evidence, there is no research, and there are no research, a few articles, uh, that are trying to explain what insulin does in cancer patients. But one of the things that we do, we are using um, synthetic insulin. Uh, insulin only one time and not every day and not every four hours, which is very different from our uh, insulin that's in our bodies. So when we use insulin, the interaction is going to be completely different to what the studies done on diabetic patients show. So how safe it is to use insulin for cancer? I would say if we use that we have been administering insulin to cancer patients since 1946, it's a lot of time of uh, evidence that proves that insulin is safe. It doesn't produce any adverse side effects. It doesn't induce cancer growth because none of our patients, after being treated, they have uh, growth during the time that we are treated. What we found in our patients that we treat with insulin, of course, you need to know what are you doing. Uh, you need to know uh, the dose uh, that you are going to administer, and you need to know how many dextrose 50% you need to use at the end to just, if you if your patient reaches 200, there is something that you are not doing right. Uh, usually the recovery of the patient must be around the same uh, level of uh, glucose uh, that was detected before starting the procedure. So no, there is no problems. There is no uh, interaction that will promote cancer growth. Is just a sign of uh, uh, the people speaking does not have any idea of what they are talking. Mm -hmm. Making comparisons between diabetic patients to cancer patients is quite a different story. Insulin is a hormone, and there are other hormones in our body. And each hormone has different, it is the same hormone, but it has different actions in different tissues. That goes for all the hormones, and the same for insulin. Insulin, we we have uh, only a very small 
view or information about what insulin does. Uh, so to me, based on more than a hundred years of anecdotal evidence treating patients, is safe. Um, yeah. None of the patients has ever died during, after uh, of the procedure. It's completely safe. And we are using uh, medications that have been approved by the local authorities as safe. And we only, some of them, we are repurposing the drugs for other uses. And our patients at uh, different clinics that are administering this procedure, procedure they have very, very good uh, outcomes. And most of, uh, many of our patients do have uh, survivals of 10 or 15 years or more. In uh, the previous podcast, I was telling you that uh, when I moved out of Mexico City in 1989 and met uh, the patient who was uh, treated in 1946 for breast cancer, that's a good survival. And I have found over the years that many of uh, my patients do have survivals of more than 10 years. Things go wrong when patients do not follow um, some uh, guidelines, regulations as to what to eat, that they need to take some supplements. Uh, the management for cancer, for the long-term management, they have to continue to take their supplements and some medications. Cancer is a disease that uh, affects the body. We need to treat the cancer as uh, a metabolic disease. If we only treat the symptom, we are not helping the patient. Just by removing the tumor from a, a physical uh, point of view, that is not going to solve the problem. We need to change the chemical environment that is promoting the growth of uh, the tumor. And the way we do that is by using insulin, because insulin is not only going to affect IGF-1 or IGF or IR, it's going to create other problems, not other chemical changes within the cell membrane, within the mitochondria, within the endothelial reticle, and uh, many other things that are positive changes. You know, let, yeah. let me um, let me give everyone a foundation of what one of the main reasons for this particular podcast. There has been talk lately of different different people uh, that using insulin in this in this particular way will stimulate an increase in IGF one. IGF one is gr after growth hormone is made in our brain by the pituitary gland. It goes to the liver and is turned into IGF one. Actually, one, two, three, four, five, but one is the main one. And so if someone wants to know what your growth hormone level is, they won't measure growth hormone. They'll measure, measure IGF-1 because that's the main active metabolite. So yes, it's true because it's called IGF-1 because it's insulin-like growth factor. And they, they, they have about a 43, 43 to 50% homology, meaning they have the same uh, molecular fingerprint. So they can bind to each other's receptors. And we've always known that and appreciated that about insulin. That means insulin can bind to the IGF-1 receptor um, and stimulate the cell to start dividing, right? And you would say, no, you don't want a cancer cell to divide. Well, you do if you're going to give chemo right away because the cancer cell is the most vulnerable when it's dividing, right? It's like, imagine a woman who's pregnant and you try to get near her baby. You better be ready for a fight. And imagine a woman who just gave birth to her baby and you try to give 
get near her baby. You better get rid of a fight. The only time that woman is vulnerable is in labor. When she's in labor, you can't, she can't do anything. Well, that's what we do with the, with the cancer cell. Uh, um, with the IGF-1, it's going to cause it to start to divide, and it's more vulnerable. So we appreciate that effect of the IGF-1, but it's not long-lasting. We do it once a week or twice a week, small amounts, the same amount you would secrete during a normal meal. You know, it's not a large and large amount. Um, and so that's not enough to change your whole metabolic, your whole metabolism. That won't change your metabolism. That'll do it for maybe a few hours, and then that's it. So that theoretical potential problem uh, needs to be understand, understood in context. It's not a risk. And uh, anyway, Rebecca, you have any information on this? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Alchemy of Natural Healing. I'm your host, Laurel Dewey. True healing is an alchemical process, meaning it must transform you on all levels, body, mind, and spirit. What affects one affects all three. True healing is one of the hardest journeys you'll ever travel, but it's one of the most rewarding and fulfilling when you get to meet yourself for the first time. If you're ready to take that journey, let's get started. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, just going to the the clinical outcomes, really, because yeah. you can talk about all day. You could do all kinds of research on on how on the relationship between IGF one and and the stimulation of or the and the uh, the development of cancer and carcinogenesis, and then how that drives the cancerous process. But Tom, like you pointed out, the dose that we're using, the frequency that we're using, it is not it's not stimulating cancer or shortening people's lives. Um, and I, I did do um, a statistical analysis from, because my dad started the clinic in, I think it was 1999, and then um, and looked at patients that he treated through 2010. And I do have just some visuals. Um, let me see here if we can go to desktop. One, maybe. Let's see. Um, let me see if I could share this here. Um, but basically, we I looked at all of the um, all the IPT patients, and then with the inclusion criteria being that um, we wanted them to have completed at least six treatments. And um, when he first started practicing, it's not that he had, uh, you know, it's a lot of patients who had. Um, let me see. I'm not sure if that's yeah. right. Keynote. Okay. Let me see. Um, it's wanting me to open system preferences. Anyway. I put, I, I share a screen. I gave. Yeah. 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 It just wants me to, um, uh, let's see camera. Let's do zoom. Okay. Yes. All the apps access your camera. Yes. Okay. But then we want to do, um, screen sharing, input monitoring. Let me see. Um, no, it's like a security thing on my computer. Oh. Uh, screen recording. Yeah. Okay. If you go uh, to um, when you go to screen yeah, share, it's, what a, it? it's opening up security and privacy here. Uh, let's see. Under I don't want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. We want Zoom to be able. Okay. 
Um, but yeah, that's keynote whiteboard. Um, let's see, basics. Security. You mean under um, under uh, under Zoom or under your uh, computer's up? Uh, yeah, so it's allows Zoom to share your screen. Okay, and then it's open screen preferences, and then it goes to security. Um, not locations, contacts. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, no I don't know why it's being and then it, that that allows the access to the microphone, speech recognition, accessibility, input monitoring. Maybe uh, you can send it to me and I'll put it up. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. just it's a couple of slides um that I put together and presented when um, in Vienna, Donato, I think it was 2008. I think it was, no, no, it'd be after 2010. It was 2012 because I, I did the analysis through 2012. There, and, I put my email on the, on the chat. So you could, if you want to just send yeah. it to me, I could, I'll download yeah. it. Yeah. And we could hopefully cut this out from the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, let me email you here. Um, all right. And then the slides. Uh, hopefully, it's not a huge. Um, let's see. So it's going to show up as a Google Drive link, Tom, because okay. it's like thirty-six megabytes. Um, it's just the slides, though, on the statistics, though, um, because it's important to to have quantitative data. I mean, it, it yeah. just is important to not rely only on theoretical data, but to, um, but to also. Well, in the end, it's all that matters. You know, uh, one of the things I tell patients, you know, when when they go to the hospital and they run into the oncologist and they give them they they give them statistics. You know, um, the point is is that statistics are irrelevant if it happens to you. Because if it happens to you, it's a hundred percent, right? It exactly. Matter. Yeah. Yeah. Twenty-six percent, thirty-three percent. There you go. I got you. Okay. Yeah, your chance of getting cancer, well, for you, is a hundred percent. So. Right. Exactly. So I don't want to hear your data. Yeah. Uh, Not reassuring that ninety-six other people didn't experience a recurrence because if you get it, then. Right. Not and remember, most of these statistics are based on dead people. Okay. And when yeah. patients see in front of you, they are alive. And the statistics refer to dead people. So most of the time, it doesn't apply to to that particular person. Exactly. And, and you know what? That's how you... Oh, sorry. When the, when the oncologist says to the person, if you don't do what I say, you'll be dead in three months. If you don't do what I say, you'll be dead in a year and a half. You know, and the, but, but the point is this. Think about it. If that person never goes back to the oncologist, then the oncologist has no data on the person who did nothing or who didn't follow his advice. So how can you say anything about people that don't come back? You can't. You can't. It's a lie. So what the, what the oncologist should say is, if you do what I say, you'll be dead in six months. If you do it. Anyway, uh, here, let me, let me find I mean, this. Mark I got... Twain said it best. There, you know, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. So here we are. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this um, 
this I presented this in 2012. And um, but this was after because my dad had passed in 2013. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a picture of my dad. Let me see here. Um, yeah, that's my picture of my dad. Yep, yeah, he did. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And then um, this next slide is just a short summary. Um, this was a basic statistical analysis. I'm not a statistician, nor do I want to be a statistician. And um, but there's some basics that ever, that I think are meaningful to anybody. And uh, but it was all patients between 2000 and 2010. Um, there were 31 currently living as of 2012. Um, 59 received less than the minimum of six treatments in order to be included in the analysis. There were 255 patients who received six or more IPT treatments. And then we did do a little more of an in-depth analysis of the breast cancer group, um, which was ongoing. And so there is a national database of survival for stage four. And we looked at stage four um, because uh, you know, my when my dad was looking at getting funding for clinical trials, you know, he said, well, we should treat patients in earlier stages because you'll get better outcomes. And and then and all the researchers at, at NCI, the National Cancer Institute, were like, oh my God, no, you practice on the sickest patients. <laughs> the, the, the saying that they had is that patients first deserve the benefits of the standard of care, then they become eligible for clinical trials or experimental therapies. Um, so, you know, and he did take that to heart, right? So a lot of the patients had, they ran, they basically had run out of options conventionally. They were told, go home and die. And these are the patients yeah. who then sought out my dad and IPT because they did not want to go home and die. They were, that's not, but they basically ran out of conventional options. Um, so I just want to put within perspective of these, of the patient group of patients who were coming to my dad in those first 10 years. Um, but I'm going to, but in, so then ACCM is air clinic for contemporary medicine. So that light green, oh, sorry, Tom, we can go back to that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Light, yeah. So the light green, um, is the median survival for the patients at who came to the clinic. The, the blue is the national average ah, for excellent. it's called SEER data. So surveillance endpoint epidemiological review. And so in all cases, this is the one to six, you know, people who lived one to six months um, and going out basically out to, I think it was 42 months um, past the diagnosis of the past, the stage four diagnosis. Um, and then there were still people alive at that point, but that we just followed through in terms of comparing to the, the national average. So in all cases, the patients who came to see us we're living longer in terms of the median survival than compared to the national average. But but what what you're unfortunately unable to even go back and, and and assess at this point is the quality. Because if you look at the people that probably did high dose, they were probably miserable and sepsis and all kinds of stuff. Whereas I know and you know that people that get IPT right. look like they don't even have cancer. Right, uh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean that there's just, you know, that, yeah, there are, there's so many other parameters. And if you ask, 
if you ask anybody who diagnosed with cancer, okay, well, you're not going to be cured if you go to the oncologist and they, oh, we might give you six more months, but patients will say, I don't want six months of, of feeling, feeling terrible and not being exactly. able to enjoy the last six months of my life. Um, right. but yeah, yeah. So if you go down to the next slide there, it was so 70 patients that made up the breast cancer statistic group. Um, the median number of treatments was 15 with a range of at least six, cause we wanted to include a, a, a minimum of six up to 65. Um, and then the median duration of treatment was anywhere from, um, you know, a little, not quite three months, um, to up to 41 months. And then the median age, and this is just the, the range of patients, just to provide some basic statistical data on the patients within that group. Um, yeah, and then they, the next, when yeah. you went up to like, when you went up to like 41 months, were you doing, a, what was the schedule? It, it, it didn't remain once a week, right? It probably went to every no, other week. No, no, no. Um, it was, you know, it was everything. You know, there were some patients who would take a break for a while and then come back right. and you know, it was when we were dealing with stage four, it's not like I, we have the cure for cancer. If we did, I would tell everybody, you know, it, there's still, there's still there. If there's, there's not one drug, there's not one method that once cancer spreads to other organs, it's not, there's no guarantee of a cure, no matter what you do. And, and then, then like you pointed out, Tom, that then it comes a mat becomes a matter of, of quality of life. And um, you can also make the argument though, that when people have improved and better quality of life, then the, that does decrease morbidity and mortality, morbidity being suffering and it decreases mortality. So people are more likely to live. And there is some interesting research on palliative care and making exactly that claim that palliative care reduces morbidity and mortality. And people, if you, as long as you feel good and you can do what you want, will you live longer? Now, yeah. in order to figure that out and how IPT would be able to contribute to perhaps increased survival, then we do have to look at a prospective study, meaning we have to have defined, you know, very specific inclusion criteria, which we didn't. The inclusion criteria was, oh, you're, you're you know, we're, you're, we could safely treat you for cancer. You have symptoms that can be palliated with chemotherapy. And however, you're not interested in the side effects related to standard dose chemotherapy, you've run out of other options so far as what conventional cancer care has to offer you. And um, so that was the inclusion criteria. Can we safely treat you? And are you likely to have benefit? We'll treat you. Um, but there, but there are some people that we treated and Tom and Donato, I'm sure it's the same for you. They wouldn't be included in a clinical trial. Right. They, you know, these are people who are, who are, might be very sick and have other comorbidities going on? And would they be included in a clinical trial? Likely not. Um, but nevertheless, if we feel that we could safely treat them and give them benefit in terms of reduction in pain, reduction in the symptoms related to, to the awful process that is that is metastatic cancer. Um, yeah, you know, I, I remember one a husband said to me uh, after his wife had passed, he said, you know, we're devastated, but not as much as we would have been because these last six months, she was living, not dying. Right. And I right. thought that was, right. I mean, you know, that's that was, what you, that's what you remember. Um, yeah, not, you know, and I think you'd ask anybody with cancer. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that, you know, it's the quality over the quantity, but I would want both for people, you know, I, that's exactly. the, the bottom line. Yeah, I want both course, for people. Yeah. And these statistics point out that, 
I mean, people with people who do IPT, at least six treatments, we're not living, we're not dying sooner. So if, for example, you know, if there was validity to the claim that IPT is somehow, the insulin we're giving is somehow stimulating cancer and making it worse, they would not have lived. So this, for example, is the lung cancer group. Um, there were patients, and then once again, the green was the median survival of the patients that we were treating with the blue being the national average. I mean, in all cases, it was, I think by, by 13 to 18 months, then it was about equal. Um, and, but hmm. that's, they weren't dying sooner, right? We right, can't right. Claim, claim necessarily that people will live longer if you do IBT. I'm not necessarily going to make that claim, especially based on such a small um, group. And then and it wasn't a prospective study where we were looking at data after these people have been treated. Um, but I, it was an important research question for myself as well, is that I would, I don't, as a nurse, I don't want to be doing something that's going to potentially shorten someone's life. And, right. but through this analysis of these, of the, of the survival of these patients, then the quite the opposite is true. Um, and then, so that was lung cancer statistics. You can go down to the next slide there. Um, that was 25 patients. It was rather, you know, it was what's, a small group. Right? Yeah, but Wait, it, like I said, in all cases, here. and then ovarian cancer, in all cases, then once again, the survival of the patients diagnosed with ovarian cancer who completed at least six IPT treatments, once again, the survival was better. So the green were the survival of the patients who came to, to the clinic. The blue is the national average. Oh, and, um, um, but yeah, if you can go down to the next slide, but like I said, the survival was better for the patients who came to the clinic versus um, the national average. And then just some, once again, some basic um, statistical information on that specific group. And you can go down to the next slide there. Um, pancreatic patients, you know, the, the patients who came to see us did head and shoulders better than the average. And, yeah. but all, the last slide, I'll just summarize the takeaway because it's not that I want to, because that was only seven patients, right? Um, it's, it is a rarer cancer. And um, however, the patients who we did treat with IPT with pancreatic cancer, there are statistical outliers, meaning if you have a bell curve of patients and you have the median survival is where most people fall in the middle, that we had patients, you know, my, my dad always said, he would come to us and he'd say, you know, we have the best patients <laughs> and we do because we have people who do their research. We have people who are actively and proactively engaged in their health. And yep. they, in all cases, you know, we ask on the intake health history questionnaire, any dietary modifications that you've made, are you taking any supplements? And a hundred percent, there was one, one woman, I think she was a young woman with breast cancer, um, was not taking any supplements and did not make any dietary changes, but it was only one person. Everybody else had made dietary modifications of some sort. It, there was, there's not a specific cancer, anti-cancer diet, um, but they all made changes to their diet with the understanding and the recognition that that will make a difference in your, in your health. Um, and then all were taking supplements of some sort. Um, right. and I think that, you know, we're, are talking about an exceptional group of people who are, who are proactively engaged in educating themselves about how to, how to better treat cancer, especially when, and in the case of some of these patients, they literally ran out of out of options in terms of treatment options at that time. Um, right. You know, I did also look at all the treatments that they've done and, and there were some patients with breast cancer who did everything. 
as soon as Herceptin came out, they tried it. As soon as Avastin, and Avastin was briefly approved for breast cancer, they were doing that. Um, they, you know, they took advantage of everything they could, and then, but yet still had cancer, and and a lot of them had symptoms related to the disease. What are you going to do? They didn't want to go home and die, which is what their oncologist told them because they didn't have anything more. And then they found IPT, and. Um, and if people did more than six, that meant that they either had a reduction in tumor markers, um, or radiographic evidence that there was improvement in disease or, um, that they had some sort of palliation and, and quali uh, you know, qualitative improvement in whether it was pain or swelling or organ dysfunction, um, levels of energy, um, so that, so that, that's what it means by that six. Okay. So if they were included in the study, it meant that they continued on with treatment because we didn't continue to treat people unless we had qualitative and or quantitative right. evidence that they were responding and that they were, they were benefiting from the treatment. Right. And, um, I think, you know, it was, it was over 90% of people went on to do, um, went on to, to do additional treatment. Mm. Um, but yeah, you can go ahead and go down to the next slide here. Once again, colon cancer, the green was the median survival of patients who had completed at least six IBT treatments. The blue is a national average. Once again, the survival was better in, for the group that was doing IPT. Um, and those are people with stage four colon cancer. And then just some basics about the demographics of the, the colon cancer group. And then, um, but yeah, if you wanna go down to the next slide, <laughs> And then just sort of the conclusion here. Um, so patients who completed at least six IPT treatments, um, having failed the standard of care, do not seem to experience any reduction in terms of survival. Okay, we compared it to the same time frame. Um, so there's it's a ten year time frame that they they put out these statistics every ten years. Um, so the, we were comparing patients who were completing from the national average to patients getting IPT within even the same time period. And in all, like I said, in all cases, they, the national, they were, their the median survival of our patients or patients who came to, to treatment for us was better than the national average. Um, however, like I, I'm not making the claim that IPT makes all the difference in the world. And, it, you know, if you should, it's going to give you head and shoulders, better survival. I can't make that claim, nor am I going to based, it was a small, um, relatively small group. We, they were not, um, inclusion criteria was not specific. You know, it was, it's not a clinical trial. We weren't doing a clinical trial. I don't even want, I'm not a research nurse. I'm not even interested in conducting a clinical trial. Um, I'm interested in, in giving people tools that are going to improve their life and, and perhaps then extend their life because when you're able to do what you want in life and we're able, um, to, to enjoy your life, you live longer. Um, and then, and then that does go, you know, the next step, it was to, uh, look at, to quantify the quality of life measures. Um, when my dad started off, he did give all patients the, um, uh, it was, there's a, um, let's see now it's called, it's a quality of life, uh, yeah, measurement. Yeah. Um, well, and a, there's a, an acronym standard, for it. It's a standard one. It's got a lot of. A lot of data behind it. Yeah. Right, um, right, right, right. Um, and, um, but yeah, but that's because that's the other fact, that's the other factor that I think is just as important to, to patients when they're looking at what, what do I do next for, for cancer? Um, 
it's it's not just their survival. Everybody, nobody wants to die sooner, um, for sure. But on the other hand, though, it's just as important. And I think, you know, especially for somebody with cancer, they want to know, you know, is it going to help me feel better? And, mm-hmm. um, and I, I'd say almost, and almost always, yes, the answer is that, um, that, and we'll know within three weeks, you know, we know within three weeks, if, you know, if we're helping you, then, um, then you will have, we're, we're going to track both qualitative measures. We're going to look at blood work. We're going to look at tumor markers. Eventually we're going to look at radiographic imaging, um, to make sure things are getting smaller. But for the most case, you know, especially in the patient population we have, they're having symptoms related to the disease. And the goal is to, to improve those, those symptoms significantly within the first three weeks. And that's yeah. the most rewarding aspect of, and why I, why I continued on with the work that my dad started. Absolutely. Is that it? Okay. And I do, you know, I, I um, there was one other study that was done um, that uh, related to, it was an odd study. I'm not sure why, um, somebody did it. I don't know if they did additional research beyond it, but it was a um, a group, a study where uh, people with um, gastric cancers, I think it was about 130 some people with advanced gastric cancers who were no longer getting treatment, but just getting best supportive care. And I do have the, the link to this, the text of this study. Um, it's on our website at the clinic, but, um, but uh, basically people were given insulin every day they were given a dose of, it depended on their body weight, but they were given insulin every day and they were tracked so far as muscle mass. They were tracked so far as, um, they were, they were looking to see if insulin can be used to treat cachexia, which is, um, when people have advanced cancer. And this is basically one of the, what makes cancer so deadly is your body will literally eat itself from the inside out, even though you, you, you might take food in, um, it's an inflammatory process, inflammation mediated process where that makes cancer so deadly. Um, even though you're eating, you, your body just eats itself from the inside. And so they were, and it was, which is an awful thing to see. It's an awful thing to, for, to not be able to help people, um, as a practitioner. And so this research group looked at using insulin. If you mm. give people insulin, then do they retain muscle mass? Do they then uh, lose less body fat? And the answer was yes. So these people with advanced gastric, pancreatic, colon cancers, um, who basically were done with active treatment and were just wanted to, they were giving, you know, quote unquote, the best supportive care. Um, they were given anti-inflammatories. They were given um, Procrit to improve anemia. And um, there was a there was a control group, and there was a group that got the daily insulin in doses about eight units to ten or twelve units at a time, and before so not meals? even was that before meals. Um. The, yes. Yeah. 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 And um, and uh, uh, and basic, and they and they did follow tumor markers as well. So right. you know. If they, to make sure is the insulin then somehow making the cancer worse and the clinical answer was no the group that right. got the insulin had better survival than the group who wasn't um they tracked the parameters of, of some very specific uh body weight measurements um and um and they also tracked the tumor markers and the insulin was not 
making the cancer blow up and get worse. And actually survival was better. And I'm sure quality of life was better in the group that was getting the insulin. So just to, once again, to underline, you know, are we doing something, you know, excessively dangerous by giving people with cancer exogenous insulin in small, you know, relatively small doses once or twice a week in the clinical re responses? No, like yeah, it's unequivocally. I agree. And you know, you were talking about muscle mass and things like that. Um, it's, there are multiple studies um, that show that uh, I think it's the girth of your thigh or is it your gastrocnemius that correlates to prognosis, correlates to survivability. You know, Interesting. Grip, right. Grip strength and things like that. And so, you know, um, well, you know, one of the things that I wanted to kind of highlight, which you were just uh, uh, referring to, was um, uh, the people that are getting IPT, um, probably the most obvious distinction between them and the other people is that other people are going into their doctor and they sit back and passively receive treatment to be fixed. Right. When there's someone is going into IPT, they're not doing that anymore. They're taking responsibility. They're going on their journey to back Absolutely. to health. And it's a whole, it's a healing journey versus a military approach of just killing, 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 right. killing. From the top down. Right. Yeah. Right. And we know. Do what I say or hit the highway, right? Exactly. My way yeah, or the I, highway. Yeah. Right. It's terrorism, psychological yeah. terrorism. And uh, we do know that the immune system is actually the shadow of the mind. Right. And so, and, and so one of the worst things you can ever do to someone is say, well, first of all, this is incurable. You just ended it. You just ended yeah. it. Yeah. We had a guy with a, with a glioblastoma uh, 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 who kept looking at the clock during the interview and uh, asked why. And he said, uh, well, they told me I was going to die. I just was trying to figure out what time or if I was at the, yeah. you know, in other words, you know, this it's poor guy. Horrifying. You know, yeah, yeah, you, don't you, tell you have to put yourself in that position. Like, what if a doctor just told you that? Like, that's, you know, and I, some, you know, similar, I had a, we had a patient who had, had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And he went out to Germany and he did a bunch of various treatments and he was working. He was a younger guy, probably in his mid fifties. And, but he didn't do what his oncologist had told him to do. He came back to the oncologist. The oncologist was like, well, well now you're incurable. And he died four days later. I got a, an email yeah. from his wife and she, she said after that visit, he just, he was just like, well, and I, I was, it was awful. It was awful. Cause he, he came back from Germany. He felt great. He had gotten married when he was out in Germany. And, but just that the force of being told, well, that, that basically took away any hope from him and, and was just right. told, you well, you're, hopeless. you know, you're not terrible now. And I'm like, that's what a terrible. I mean, I, you know, you don't want to lie to people, but on the other hand, if you don't know, if you can't predict, then don't conjecture like that. Exactly. Right? And, and listen, you know, Rebecca, uh, Dr. Donato, we all know this. Nobody you've ever met and nobody you know has a contract for tomorrow. We're here today by the grace yeah. of God. We'll be here tomorrow by the grace of God. So in reality, I mean, I might not, you know, tonight, who knows? I might get hit by a We don't know. In other words... Uh, we all have the same prognosis. The, the, the thing we want to do is make every day the best we possibly can. But, we, you know, whether I'll be here next week, whether you'll be here, whether Biden will be here or, you know, uh, whoever, we don't know. So to say that to somebody sitting in a seat of authority is, right. 
I, I, and I, I have to say, I call that sorcery because you put a spell on yeah. them. You actually, you actually, you know, when you're, you know, the words abracadabra actually mean, um, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but they, they're, they're from Aramaic, original Aramaic, and they mean, I will create as I say. And, uh, and, and that it's very true. So when you tell somebody and you're in a seat of authority that they're going to die if you don't, uh, within two months, they actually die on cue. And that's a tragedy, right? right? right. So you, if you can't give them hope, then shut your mouth. Because you right. can't, yeah. you don't know if they're going to die. You don't know. And I've had, I your mean, word I is your wand, you. though. And so don't, don't go condemning people. And when, 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 yeah. And I know sometimes people ask, there are patients who ask, they want to know, and nor do you want someone to die, you know, and not have a will and have all of that mess with the family. But but I, I, but I think it's not that people are, you know, my, my dad would always point this out. He's like, you know, we're all adults here, right? You know, he's right. like, he's, he's, he's not going to treat somebody as if they don't understand the seriousness of their condition. Um, but at the same time, then he's not going to talk down to them like that. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's a certain expectation. People know how serious cancer well, is. As serious as cancer, well, you know, it's a saying because we know it. And the opposite is the truth, too. Bad mm -hmm. when you were when you're told that negative, uh, you, you know, it affects your immune system. Well, the opposite is the truth. I had a woman and just one example. I, there's many who was just came from her oncologist. She had breast cancer throughout her lungs, her bones, everywhere. She was on oxygen. They brought her into our clinic on a gurney. And yeah. she was lying there and I walked up to her and she had seen some of my videos. So she grabbed my arm and she said, thank God. Now I know I'm going to make it six weeks no. later. She was jogging to the clinic. And her husband was driving behind her to make sure she was eight years later. I got a postcard from Paris. Yeah. She was on vacation. Wow, that's awesome. And, that's awesome. And the difference yeah. between her and another woman was she said, I know. She didn't say, I believe. She said, I know. And that reminds me of the woman who touched Jesus's robe. And he turned to her and said, it wasn't me. It was your faith. And that's the yeah. power of faith. Faith is knowing, not believing. You know, whenever you believe something, you also, that implies you have doubt. But when you know something, there's no doubt. And that's, I think, one of our goals as doctor, you know, a uh, doctor in, in uh, um, uh, and Rebecca, it doesn't matter if you're a nurse practitioner, you're still a doctor. Um, uh, doctor in Latin means to teach. Um, and our goal is to really teach and to inspire. I mean, a computer yeah. can... We, we can put all of our data in the computer. It's going to come out with better protocols than us. It's not giving protocols. It's inspiring and teaching and all that sort of thing. And that's I mean, really to what go back to the distinction between a nurse and a doctor. I mean, I, I did go the nurse route partly because, you know, Florence Nightingale, when she wrote notes on nursing, nature alone cures because it's not that it's not that drugs cure. It's not that, you know, she made the the, the analogy of, she was a nurse in the Crimean War and so dealt with a lot of gunshot wounds. And she would say, well, the, the surgeon can take the, the bullet out and stitch it back up. And the nurse is there to give that patient clean water, fresh, fresh air, good food, so that their body is in the best, best position to yeah. knit and heal together. But she said it's it's not the surgeon taking out, you know, doing the surgery. It's and it's the nurse setting up the environment, but it is the innate healing capacity of the body that knits everything back together. Period. And that's all we can ever do is just just put our patients in the best possible position so that that innate healing power has full can can manifest in in full within somebody's body. You know, it's that's all it ever, ever heals.
you know, Voltaire, the French philosopher, said that the role of the physician is to entertain the patient entertain, while nature yeah. cures them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so we're just medical entertainers. Yeah, yeah. Most, most <laughs> my dad the was the doctor. He would do. have been a stand-up comedian. Oh, my God. He would just, there were people who would just be just raucous laughter. It was just like, go from crying to, and then he'd have them falling on the floor laughing. And I don't know what he said, but but that's, but that's what the heal, that's the healing. That's it. Yeah. Yes, that's what we most, most of the time, that's what we do. And now giving you some additional information on insulin, because um, mainly that was what you wanted me to share with you. We need yes, to understand thank you, Donato, that, for bringing back to the topic. <laughs> uh, what is insulin? Insulin is a hormone, and insulin is uh, main function is uh, to control the metabolic fluxes that uh, happen in our body. Why do uh, we have insulin resistance? Because there is an associated inflammatory process. And when there is inflammation, then there is insulin resistance. So we need to reduce first the inflammatory process that is taking place into the body. And then insulin resistance will be reduced or improved. It is important to know that uh, the effects of insulin, there are two types of uh, effects that we uh, that we are aware and those uh, can be read in um, a few of our articles. Insulin has uh, known effects that uh, are, have been uh, investigated and mostly related to uh, diabetic patients. And there are indirect effects which have been difficult to uh, study and which could have been difficult to replicate. And one of those uh, and several of those effects that happen in the interaction of exogenous insulin, that's the insulin we administer to the patient, uh, takes place during the treatment of uh, using a small dose of insulin to improve the or make the cell membrane permeable and then deliver the chemo drugs. The, uh, one of the actions of uh, insulin, it's important to know each tissue has a different response and insulin might not be working only at single cells. It uh, will establish a crosstalk between different uh, tissues. So insulin is not uh, just acting at one cell. It is acting at a particular tissue in order to create, um, uh, promote the cell membrane permeability. And that is one of the explanations why insulin has been working in the management of cancer patients since 1946. We know that insulin is considered uh, the storage hormone because it uh, helps to uh, helps or promotes the entrance of sugar or the fuel inside of uh, the cell. But uh, that's not only the action. That action it only happens in normal, healthy individuals. Um, we know that insulin also promotes uh, the formation of uh, glucose as a, uh, for a storage to have some 
energy reserves. And also, uh, insulin facilitates the uh, uh, facilitates that uh, the store the glucose that has been stored in different parts of uh, the body will get back into the bloodstream because at some point it uh, the body needs extra energy. We also know that insulin works in the blood-brain barrier. So for some uh, brain tumors, uh, insulin therapy might be very beneficial. The problem is that there are not many uh, drugs available to treat the tumors uh, in the, the brain. And we know that the most of the actions that insulin does is mainly in the muscle tissue, the connective tissue. And the insulin behavior in the liver is completely different to what the insulin does in the muscle or in the connective uh, tissue. So we need to understand that uh, the way we use insulin is small dose, not uh, on a constant uh, daily administration. So uh, the interaction of exogenous insulin with the growth factors, etc., is minimal. And at that time, it's not only insulin that we are giving. Insulin, we are not using insulin as a therapeutic drug. We are insulin. We are using insulin to start a chemical process to facilitate or promote the transportation from the extracellular fluid into the intracellular compartment of the medication because the medication has to work inside of the cell. As um, the disease happens only inside of the cell, not outside. So in order to correct a disease, we need to go inside of the cell. And inside of the cell, there are multiple organs, and each one, they have multiple functions. But we need to correct those functions. And with the cancer and uh, chemo, what we will be doing is destroying those cells because their genetic code has been altered and we need to get rid of them. Also, at the same time, insulin is going to promote the increase of white cells, which are needed to clean and uh, stimulate the immune system. So basically, insulin is a multifunction hormone when administered in uh, the proposed way with uh, insulin potentiation therapy that will end up producing a long-lasting result, and which, by the way, uh, Tom referred me a patient that uh, she was diagnosed in 2021 with a breast tumor. I saw her on Monday, November the 6th, last Monday, with a tumor measuring at around three centimeters. Today, this, um, this Monday, a few hours ago, the tumor measured 1.5. Yeah. 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 Yes. And that's no. the, you know, I would always attribute that to the healing power of that, that patient. And, and it is, it's, it is, and then you brought up as well, the immunotherapeutic aspects of insulin Donato, um, because I came across some interesting research by a fellow whose wife had died of cancer and he went to the library because this was well before the time when we had the internet and, uh, and, and came up with a, with a protocol um, to treat tumors. He did do some initial research with dogs, but that was a very simple protocol of insulin and potassium and glucose. And 
Um, and his, his, the angle is that, that he was looking at is that you need insulin to activate lymphocytes. So lymphocytes, and this is, this is something that we know now more that we've studied checkpoint inhibitors in conventional cancer care. We, we know that there are, there are immune cells that hang out in the tumor microenvironment and actually work to induce the, the tumor microenvironment to be more conducive to cancer cell growth instead of doing what they're supposed to do, which is kill the cancer cell, um, because they can become inactivated. So insulin can is what is necessary and needed to activate these lymphocytes. And this guy had some interesting results with some dog tumors. Um, he never made it as far to treating people, but but this, it, it, and I think insulin, and this is something that hasn't been studied extensively, but it has, I think it has some really important immunotherapeutic effects. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and Dr. DeSanto, what you were saying before about uh, helping, helping uh, drugs cross the blood brain barrier, that reminds me of your grandfather when he first treated was somebody with tertiary syphilis. And, yeah. you know, he was able to cross the blood brain barrier and get, eliminate this, uh, the, the, the spirochete, the organism that was causing it. But what that also reminds me of is this. And, and th if, if you used insulin, if that were standard therapy, it would put an end to clinical trials. Because all of these clinical trials are saying, what, what, what new chemo can kill this cancer? Well, it turns out that poison is poison is poison. It'll always be poison. What cancer cells learn is they develop what's called the multi-drug resistant gene. And all that means is they can push the chemo out quicker than you can get it in. But when you use insulin, you're opening a door, a back door that the cancer cell cannot afford to close because it needs it for survival. So you can get small, you can actually get a higher intracellular chemotherapy uh, by using a small amount with with insulin than you could with a high dose and no insulin because you're opening a door that they can't close. And I can remember when I first started in New York, um, uh, I, had, I had an oncologist who they would use all of their protocols and then they would say, all right, there's nothing else I can do, but go see this guy. I don't know what he does, but it works. It was great. So anyway, he came to me. I would use the exact same protocol that the oncologist had used that failed with low dose and insulin and it worked. So it wasn't that it was resistant to that chemo because you can't become resistant to poison poison is poison it's just it can't push it out so insulin the one of the beauties of insulin is that uh really you could use anything so i always have an a and a b protocol because i want to see what's working so i have a for two weeks and then b for two weeks but my b is always the same old standard c-a-m-f cytoxin adriamycin methotrexate and five because those are the old standards and they seem to work as good as any new combination it doesn't matter. Poison is poison is poison is poison. And it's cheaper. The patient pays less than $20 for those four medications as opposed to 800 for the new medication. So, or um, more. Checkpoint <laughs> yeah. inhibitors are like 20000 bucks, and that's the wholesale price. <laughs> right. And now remember with the IGF-1, which is you know, one of the reasons that we were going to talk about this. Um, IGF-1, by the way, is, is again for everyone is uh, basically what the, the liver turns growth hormone into, and it's what has the effect. So there's a condition called acromegaly where if someone has a, uh, a tumor in their, uh, you know, benign tumor in their pituitary that produces um, growth hormone. So they have, a, they have a lot of IGF-1 around their body. And when we look at the data with them, 
they only have an increase in um, adenomas of the colon and some increased risk of colon cancer, but not all cancers. They don't get all cancers. So I'm, what my point is, is that even if IGF-1 is high, like it is in these people where it's, it's pathologically high, it's not causing the problem that's being inferred by whoever's making this claim about uh, insulin uh, stimulating IGF-1. I just want to clarify that. We also know that IGF-1, there's a U-shaped curve. At really low doses, it increases all-cause mortality, and at really high doses, it increases all-cause mortality. But if you're in the average, um, if you're in the average, it's not, doesn't at all. It's necessary for health. So IGF-1, again, like you were saying, Dr. Donato, that um, it depends on which tissue insulin is in, it's going to have what effect, and that's for the whole body. Like, for example, whatever is good for a cancer cell is also good for a healthy cell. So you can say, well, I'm going to put them on a ketogenic diet, and I'm going to use DON to block glutamine, because glutamine is a fuel and glucose is a fuel for cancer. Well, it's also a fuel for healthy cells. And glutamine is also the primary fuel source for our, ins for our uh, lymphocytes and our, and our uh, enterocytes. So if you eliminate glutamine, you're going to die. So you can't eliminate glutamine, you can't eliminate glucose. So the problem, so you have to understand, cancer is us. It's not an alien that got into us, it's us. And all we have to do really, I think, is bring the body back into harmonic balance and the divine intelligence will put it back together and make it, make it work right. Because we, we'll never figure it out. Remember, 36 septillion chemical reactions going on in our bodies every second. Who, who, who can comprehend that? Certainly not a human. So uh, we can't fix it. All we can do is honor it, try to bring it into balance and watch it work and that is why we need more than one substance because yeah. when uh, uh there is the fashion of using just we will just be using uh, lemonade water and that will cure everything no we need a combination of multiple drugs some to kill some to heal some to promote uh, uh other um activities uh, yeah. we cannot base our diet on just uh eating uh, apples uh, and nothing else. Uh, the, the new idea of, uh, like for example, uh, using uh, cannabis for everything, it's good, but we cannot base our diet on just eating uh, apples or and not only the avocados. rest. We need, we need or only eat avocados. We need to eat at least how many billions of chemical substances a day, the same as the number of chemical reactions that are taking place. Our body is chemistry and physics. If we don't have a, a good replenishment of multiple chem, uh, chemical substances, then we will get uh, ill. We need to eat, um, preferably natural, organic, balanced, and keep drinking water. As many chemicals that we can provide from natural sources, our health will be much better if, and the same when we want to treat something we need to incorporate not only three chemo drugs we need to incorporate many other substances to help that body and to address the problem as a whole uh, body uh, uh, problem and not just uh, removing the tumor which is only symptomatic treatment and that most of the times will lead only to a failure 
a recurrence and not the good quality of life that we want. We cannot uh, keep people on earth uh, for a hundred years. Nature has set uh, limits and each hundred years we have at least three generations. And those three generations work in synchrony. There is the older generation that is teaching. There is the middle day generation that is taking care. And there is the new generation, the babies, the boys that are learning, which will learn from their parents and we, which also learn from their grandparents. So why do we need to keep people living up to a hundred? Okay. Uh, otherwise we will have a extra population of people. And uh, every time that we have people living more, then the poor babies are not going to learn too many things because we'll be interested only in keeping people that uh, will reach 150 or 180 years. We will create another chaotic problem with Earth. So we need to focus on nature, learn from nature, eat and do things that nature does. We cannot move the night, we cannot speed up the day. There are many things that in order to work, feel and be healthy, we need to adhere to nature's law. Exactly, I 100%, 100% agree. I think the reason we're all sick is because our bodies are trying to adapt to these artificial environments that we live in. You know, if we were living in the forest, and, and if you wanna ever, I think the best reference is not, scientific literature, but the best reference is nature, right? So if somebody wants to know, what time should I go to sleep? I say, well, imagine it was 7,000 years ago. You'd go to sleep when the sun goes down. What would you eat? What are you going to catch with these hands? Are you going to go grab a cow and start eating it? Are you going to, you know, what would you do if you were naked in the jungle? What would you eat? Would you ch choke a frog and then eat it? I mean, you have to think about it. So I say, and what would you be doing? You'd be moving all day. So moving all day, going to bed with the sun, there's only one drink that God produced, it's called water. So you'd be, you know, in other words, if you tried to live a natural life where all of your biological needs are being met, your body would not need to go through any adaptations, which we call diseases, right? Like for example, insulin, uh, if I'm eating pasta, bread, potato, and rice, and I have too much glucose, my body's wisdom will become insulin resistant in order to save me. It's not a disease that got into me, Right. All I got to do is and I shouldn't take drugs. I just stop eating potato rice. Blah, blah, blah. In other words, I, I, it's, I think that's a very important thing to understand that disease is the body's adaptive physiology to a situation where our biological needs are not being met. And so the res restoration of health requires that we put ourselves in a position where our body no longer needs to adapt. That's kind of fundamental philosophy. So this is beautiful. Because we need help with that. So we go to doctors and nurses to help us with that. But we want to go to doctors and nurses who understand that and aren't just going to give us just drugs and surgery because that doesn't fix the issue. No, no, no. And, but, and you know, that's the thing. What we all practice is integrative. And integrative means we're going to, we know allopathic. We understand it. Right. But we also know. It has a lot other. of benefit for sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, if the baby's coming out foot first, you don't go to an herbalist. Right. If, if you fractured, if you fractured a leg, you don't go to an herbalist uh, or a TCM. So you got to know when to use what, under what circumstances. Yeah. And we got to know and understand that disease 
starts only when there is an inflammatory process. And an inflammatory process inside of our body, it only happens when we don't eat correctly. As you were saying, Tom, if you eat rice, pasta, and bread four times a day, you are creating an inflammatory reaction that is going to block the insulin receptor. Then you will have insulin resistance. Then there is no flow of carbohydrates inside of the blood. And insulin does not only promote the entrance of carbohydrates, there is proteins and fat. So there is a lot of actions that the insulin does. But if there is an inflammatory process, it will end up creating a disease and will have one of those beautiful names. So we better know what we eat to prevent inflammation and we better eat as healthy and natural as possible in order to have our insulin levels within normal ranges. Exactly. Within healthy. I, I always make that distinction between healthy and normal because uh, a normal American every 35 seconds has a heart attack. Every 45 seconds has a stroke. One out of two gets cancer. One out of three gets cancer. So I, last thing in the world I want to be is normal. So what we don't have, unfortunately, are is healthy ranges. What's a healthy range? You know, We know what normal is, but what's healthy? And that's what, uh, in fact, I was trying to do that with a, a doctor, uh, Luigi Fontana at uh, Washington University. He was in St. Louis and I was in New York, and we were going to try to see if we could get a lot of healthy people and start to develop reference ranges, you know, so we could understand healthy versus normal. Um, but I think we should do that someday because yeah, I think that's really important uh, to understand what's, what's a healthy insulin, what's a healthy, um, uh, you know, whatever it is, hemoglobin, you know, um, PSA, TSH. So anyway, I'm so, I'm so really honored and happy that we're all still friends. We've known each other for so years, for so long. And, and, uh, we're all still doing pretty much the same thing we did at the beginning. So um, I would love to have you guys back and we'll try to pick, we're gonna really take IPT apart and, uh, and, and uh, use our combined experience and knowledge. And let's try to, uh, because what we need to do is reestablish um, the lineage of, the, uh, of uh, your grandparent, your, your family, uh, Dr. Donato, and, um, and, then, and then of course with Rebecca and her father. You know, so we really need to reestablish that lineage and make sure that IPT uh, goes down in history as what it really is. It's a phenomenal, incredible thing, you know, and I think your grandfather should get a, a, a Nobel Prize posthumously, of course. But um, I mean, it's an incredible, incredible thing. And I mean, and I've used it with, uh, you know, with botanicals, with uh, with quercetin, with uh, um, curcumin. Uh, you can use it without, you don't just have to put in chemo. And I know you do that, Dr. Donato, you use it for, you know, you know, limes and other kinds of things. So it's a, it's uh, your grandfather. He started out with syphilis, tertiary syphilis. So um, anyway, so until next time, let's, let's yeah. Thank again. you so much for, for the work that you're doing, Tom. It's phenomenal because I, I have, I've had, like five or six of my patients were just like, Dr. Lodi said, Dr. Lodi said, I'm like, do you talk to him? He's on his podcast and they love it. I mean, people find it so empowering. And I love hearing that, that they are getting this fantastic information and then it, and it's transforming their lives. So thank you for what you do. And of course, Donato, as always, not just thank you to you, but, and, and your, and your family, 
but I, I could just listen to you all day. The, the wisdom you've acquired wisdom. You know, I, I and remember reading, I read some letters that you had written to my dad. And I think, you know, you were, you were sort of practicing English, writing English at that point. And, um, and just sort of, you know, telling him about your day and, and, um, and now to hear you speak these, these wisdoms. I mean, that's, that's the development of, of somebody who plays close attention to life over many decades and also has learned you you've learned and you've internalized the wisdom that passed on from your grandfather and your father and now we are honored to to be able to partake of it and benefit from it so thank you as well right i mean yeah speaking to you is like speaking to three generations but coming out of you it's a, it's a it's pretty amazing so we must we must remind the world what ipt really is about and by the way it didn't always have that name you know, didn't 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 your didn't your father, Doctor Eric, come up with who came up with IPT? He did, and yeah, Donato, like you had said, the it was initially called cellular therapy, it for short, but then the complete title being cellular therapy to change the biophysical biochemical constants of the blood, because what your grandfather and your dad did was looked at just doing basically metabolic panels one right after the other. It's not just the glucose that changes with in the presence of insulin, but potassium changes and fats and hormones. It, it insulin insulin catalyzes this really intricate change from the extracellular to the intracellular. And then all of the changes that then at that institutes in each individual cell. And it's kind of uh, miraculous and amazing. And we can't even fully comprehend it, but we just know that we can use it to our advantage in, in within the context of IPT or cellular therapy, as your grandfather called it. Yes. And uh, today, I think uh, when my grandfather uh, invented uh, his uh, cellular therapy, he was really seeing, he was really seeing that the therapy, the use of insulin was really a natural form of dealing with disease because uh, insulin is a natural hormone occurring in our body. He understood correctly the role of insulin and the action of insulin. So uh, today, insulin is one, I would say it's the only natural physiological therapy available to treat many uh, diseases because it uses what our body has to take advantage of many chemical changes in order to recover uh, the healthiest state. Absolutely. Amen. Absolutely. And yeah. <laughs> that goes right into what, what you were saying, Rebecca, about um, the, the study where they were using insulin uh, prior to meals just for cachexia. And I think that I, yeah. I'm, I'm so gl glad to hear that because I, you know, I deal with cachexia a lot and I think I'm going to start adding that in. That, that's a wonderful thing to do. So. All right. Well, well, let's do this again. And I'll be in touch with you guys to, to, to coordinate that. And uh, again, thank you. And thank you to everybody for watching. And because I, I hope you all now have a deeper appreciation for what IPT is. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Dr. Lodi podcast. Join Dr. Lodi's membership community at drlodi.com, where you will have exclusive access to Dr. Lodi's cancer healing and wellness webinars, a community of health-minded people, healthy lifestyle recommendations, educational videos, and discounts on courses and content. While you're there, RSVP for upcoming events and register for the Stop Making Cancer online course. 
If you enjoyed listening, please share and write a review.